and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 223. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Sharnell Bush. It's always a good time chatting with you, Kip. And the feeling is mutual, not only for talking with you, but regarding a film you and I both really enjoy, and of course, the subject of today's episode, the animated film Zootopia, which came out in 2016. And before going any further, listeners, we are going to be spoiling the film, so if you haven't seen it, we would both highly recommend that you do so. That said, we will do our best to include you in the conversation if you don't plan on watching it, or if you've previously seen it and don't remember all of the finer plot points, we are going to be going through the film and talking about why it's quite meaningful and really insightful. The film follows the rabbit Judy Hopps who has big dreams of becoming a police officer in Zootopia, this utopian metropolis that includes animals of all types, although it's 90% prey species and 10% predators. And she's initially mocked for this because people note her size and the fact that no rabbit has previously served as a police officer in Zootopia. She begins her job and, of course, in her idealism, is immediately met with the harsh reality that she's going to be a meter maid at first, and won't be given a lot of responsibility, which is relevant during a time when 14 animals have disappeared around the city. All of them, interestingly enough, are predator species, all the way from tigers to otters. And while Judy wants to pursue this as a more meaningful and important case than parking tickets, she is stuck with the latter, until she meets a fox named Nick Wilde, who's not only mischievous, but in a lot of ways nihilistic, doesn't believe that things can change, which appears to be true of a lot of Zootopia's citizens, and so he as a predator not only feels judged, but resigns himself to that kind of lifestyle that no one's going to give him a better opportunity or even a chance to disprove their prejudices, and we'll come back to that. The two eventually begin to work together, Judy wins him over to an extent, and blackmails him initially with some words he'd said about scams he had run, and the two end up uncovering a plot in which the assistant mayor had been, for lack of a better term, injecting predator species with a serum to make them go berserk, and very poetically, fulfill some of the public paranoia and fear about predator species and how quote-unquote savage they truly are. Ultimately, Judy and Nick foil this plot, though not without Nick first witnessing some of Judy's prejudice against him as a fox, even though they'd been working together for a few days rather closely. But at the end of the film, a lot of positive change has taken place. Not only was the plot foiled, but Judy learns about herself that despite her idealism, she was a flawed character, and indeed still is in many ways, and Nick furthermore appears less resigned to apathy, and actually willing to become Judy's partner, which I find particularly meaningful. And the film ends there, on what I think is not only an optimistic note, but a wonderful message for children, to whom the film was primarily marketed. And Charnel, listeners, I thank all of you for your patience with that summary. But let's start from the beginning of the film now, and really get into what caught our attention, and why we think it's worth discussing. I think one of the most obvious starting points, at least talking points of this movie, was once Judy's parents are met with her dreams and aspirations, their response to those goals is pretty negative. And they try to shut her down right away. 
Judy's father talks about the importance of complacency and how great it is to always aim way low, lower than you want as far as your goals go, and talks about how goals are kind of just like ideas and that they should stay in your head. And I think that a lot of children, specifically a lot of young children, are met with those same things. I know for a fact when I was a kid, there was a lot of things I wanted to be, a lot of which I was not prepared to be or have the personality or the functionality to be, like an astronaut. Crazy fear of tight spaces. But at least I know that my mom would have supported me in that. And I think that a lot of kids feel like shunned and limited because of what their parents' ideas for them are. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I completely agree. And not only did her father speak about the importance of complacency, he uses the word beauty. And I find it so interesting because to me, what was beautiful about this film and the reality it comments on is that there are people in the world who have beautiful impressions of how human beings can operate together or how our world can operate as a whole, how nature truly looks. And for other people to come in, as is often the case, and say, that sounds real lofty to me, I don't know if you should be pursuing that, is really crushing to me. And it's something that I've been met with as I, like Judy, often have idealistic thoughts about how people or systems can work together. And that's not the reality we live in, but I don't think Judy's wrong in aspiring to help craft that reality or at least move towards it. So I'm really glad you brought this up. And I wonder if Judy's father, in his rather pessimistic or realistic view of things, appears laughable to younger audiences. Because to you and I, it's clear that he's worthy of mockery and represents a great foil to Judy's optimism. But I wonder if there are kids who see that and think, the logic makes sense to me, don't set high expectations and you'll never be disappointed. And for however we feel about Judy's father, he is ultimately, whether in ignorance or insight, trying to protect her, especially from actual threats in her life, like her classmate Gideon Gray, who's a fox and is bullying her friends one day when she steps in to defend them. And he, being more than twice her size, unsheathes his claws and scratches her across the face and essentially says, you'd better remember this the next time you try and step up or act out of line and be something that you're not, which is such a striking image and so heartbreaking because you know when watching the film, indeed these two early moments we've established work together in a lot of ways, that childhood experiences or remarks, whether made by bullies or teachers, perhaps your parents or other authority figures, really stick with you. And the trauma established by this fox, Gideon Gray, sticks with Judy and is a really heartbreaking moment. And I would agree. I think that as a social worker and as a person who does community work, trauma really does inform the way you approach the world. It affects the way you move in society, how you interact with people, the relationships you build, and ultimately what you end up wanting to do with your life. And it really sets a trajectory for you. And I think that with Judy, though, we saw the other side of that. We saw her use this self-doubt and we saw her use everyone's negative ideas and outlooks on her life to kind of power her through where we saw her go to the police academy, regardless of what everyone told her not to do. And even while she was there, she was met with opposition from, I think it was her boot camp instructor and other people who kind of just kind of walked around her and walked over her to get their own goals met and to accomplish them without even helping or assisting her or encouraging her at all. And her using that isolation to kind of prove herself and actually becoming the first rabbit on a police force, I said, speaks to the bravery of Judy and I think should encourage kids to say, like, no matter what people say, no matter how ignored you feel or how alienated you feel, that motivation sometimes can only be internal and you've kind of got to pull from within yourself to make things happen. 
And what I really love about the boot camp training scene, which is a montage of sorts, is that Judy is not well suited to any of the climates that she's faced with. Not the desert, not the jungle, not the tundra. And while I can't deny the reality in which we the viewer live, there is something compelling about that idea that you can at least face or attempt things that seem above or beyond you. And especially for human beings, in my opinion, one of the most adaptable species ever, that it's worth trying. And Judy is an excellent character in that regard. And having mentioned species, it's worth noting that her father not only remains worried and concerned about Judy, but as he and Judy's mother send their daughter off to the big city of Zootopia to finally become a full-fledged officer after passing the academy, her father has a lot of equipment to keep Judy safe from foxes. Fox repellent, a fox taser, and various other things that Judy's mother says, I don't know if she'll need those, and Judy reluctantly takes them, if only to get her father to be quiet, but not before he says, look out for the predators, it's in their DNA. And this comes up time and again in the film, this idea, loosely veiled for a human audience, that those around us we may not understand or previously were cast in a negative light are somehow fundamentally evil or out to harm or get us. And that really sits with me because it speaks to the power of narrative and how much we do or do not think changes possible over a long span of time. So when Judy arrives at the police station on her first day of work, you know, not forgetting her fox, her fox pepper spray and everything, she encounters the dispatcher, Officer Clawhauser, you know, a kind of chunky cheetah is one of my favorite things about the movie. And right away, he sees her and kind of tokenizes her. It's like, oh, you're so cute. And she stops him and says, hey, bunnies can call other bunnies cute, but when you do it, it's kind of offensive. And I think that speaks so often to the narratives that we see as humans where we say things that our intent is to be, you know, nice or kind. And it comes off as, you know, as condescending or patronizing. And it kind of sets other people apart, especially as a person who comes in as an other, someone who is, either, you know, maybe like a racial gender minority, someone who feels kind of on their own or on an island and is looking to kind of fit in. Being met with that right away kind of makes you feel unwelcome. And in this early third or so of the film, we have Judy's parents telling her she's one thing, the bully Gideon Gray telling her she's another, and the members of the police academy and the police force even further still saying, this is how we see you, this is how we are defining who you, Judy Hopps, are. And what I really love about the film is that, however idealistic or naive Judy may be, that's established early on, and we know that she cares, we know that she's compassionate and has a dream she's chasing, and while the following may make her appear ignorant to reality, she doesn't really divert that course until a crucial moment in the film, which has yet to happen. But at this point, she meets Nick Wilde, the fox, who she catches in a scam, and now the two begin to work together, and he remarks to her, through his cynicism, that animals come to Zootopia with dreams, but, quote, you can only be what you are. So clearly this DNA idea, this fundamental truth to who someone is, has really seeped into his perception of the world. And what I have to credit the writers for here is that Judy's not the only character we care about. We also feel for Nick. We don't want him to hate himself. There's something moving about him because he doesn't appear malicious with his scam. He's just trying to survive, however dishonestly. And you can sense that there is reluctance to what he does and also a willingness to help Judy find Emmett Otterton, the missing otter, 
And with Nick's help and very begrudging permission from the chief of police, Judy sets out to find the missing otter. And they end up connecting his disappearance to the godfather Arctic Shrew, who's of course a stereotype off of the American mafioso godfather archetype. And this Arctic Shrew remarks that he doesn't know where Emmett Otterton went, but he does know that the otter scratched up the back of his limousine before disappearing into the forest. And again, we have a remark on savagery, where the godfather says, we may be evolved, but deep down, we're still the same animals. And that was one of my favorite quotes from the movie. I think that it speaks a lot to no matter how much we change the way we look, no matter how much we change the way we act, and we all have social norms that we like to adhere to, we all act a certain way when we're around certain crowds, whether it be to be assimilated or to be accepted or, or to be invisible. There's a lot of prey in Zootopia who I'm sure do their best to stay hidden throughout the day. We rarely see mice unless we're in Little Rodentia. I hope that's how you pronounce it. But I really do think it speaks a lot to how we act as a society towards each other. When our backs are either against the wall or we're challenged too much, that we do resort to our basic human instincts and lash out or attack people to kind of make ourselves feel powerful again. One of the things I liked about this kind of transition in this movie was that we have an otter, you know, kind of losing it, who ends up attacking who we find out is a panther, who is taking him to meet the godfather, Mr. Big. And we see this small animal who, pretty unassuming, non-threatening, does some real damage to this dangerous predator panther just because he resorted to those instincts of lashing out and hurting people, whether because you're afraid or because you're unsure or you need to prove yourself. So I think that it just speaks to how we as people, even if we're the ones that people don't think can do any damage or scar anyone, we actually can do a lot of it. And in beautiful contrast to the idea of lashing out, being aggressive, being violent, the subsequent scene teaches us something interesting about Nick the Fox. He and Judy are still on the hunt for the otter, and Nick tells Judy a story about his childhood, where he essentially tried to join the animal equivalent of the Boy Scouts. And the other animals get him down in a basement and turn the lights off, shine a flashlight in his face, and bully him, and they put a muzzle on him, because in their words, they'd never trust a fox, or let a fox join their group. And so he runs out of the building distraught and in despair, and we see him back in the present, and he says to Judy, you never let them see that they get to you. And he goes on to say, if the world's only going to try and see a fox as shifty and untrustworthy, there's no point in trying to be anything else. And it's a beautiful scene when we see this discussion happening in the tram, because Nick and Judy are such beautiful polar opposites to one another. One has this confidence, arguably not based in reality, she's still learning about the world of Zootopia and how all these animals interact with one another, and yet she's so confident, at least until her confidence fails her. And Nick, on the other hand, was so defeated early on in life that he's resigned himself. Judy is trying to craft her own story, one that may arguably not fit Zootopia and its citizens, and in many ways, Nick is the victim of a story that's been told about him. We see that he has redeeming qualities, but if you asked most individuals in Zootopia, especially Prey, they might agree with the narrative that foxes are sly, untrustworthy, and shifty. So I think this definitely speaks to how past experiences, whether it be Judy's or Nick's, with people and with life has colored the way that they move through the rest of their lives. More personally, I connected with Nick in this moment because he speaks to the exhaustion that comes with constantly working to be the less threatening, less demonized version of yourself when everyone already has that bias in their head. 
and just specifically as a black man moving through America, no matter how many degrees I have or how well-spoken I am, there are still people who in the world will refer to me as a hoodlum or a thug if I step in front of them too quickly or say something kind of offhandedly if they're rude to me. And at that moment where you feel unprotected, because if everyone feels this way, who is going to stand up for you? Who's going to kind of like stand in that gap? And so at that moment, me and Nick kind of vibed on a, on a very, very deep and emotional level. And it made me appreciate that a little bit. Next in the film, Nick and Judy break into the facility where they've tracked Emmett Otterton. And indeed, they find him in a cage, still berserk and mentally lost. They also find the 13 other missing animals. And what ultimately happens is that they call for backup and the police come in to arrest the mayor, who is a lion that was on the scene, who was also speaking to a doctor at that point, who in this facility was trying to diagnose why these predators were going savage. And the mayor very memorably remarks as he's going into the cab, we still don't know why this is happening. It could destroy Zootopia. And here we get into what I think is one of the most powerful messages of the film. Not that these 14 predators have done much destruction or caused a substantial loss of life, but that they have the potential to do so. And it's that which ultimately makes them the subject of fear. And the audience later learns who the true villain of the film is, but arguably the underlying force that drives the entire plot is this fear of what predators are capable of. And speaking of fear, we see that fear is starting to grip the public because now the news story has broke about these 14 savage, quote unquote, predators who are out of control and no one knows the reason why. And now we have Judy at a press conference with the mayor's office explaining to the media the situation and what she's found out and the details she knows of the case. And in this, we find her using some troublesome, some would describe it as problematic language to describe these predators. And in that, even if it's not purposely stoking the fear of the citizens of Zootopia, she gets caught up in the news frenzy in the whirlwind of the media and kind of loses her train of thought, starts answering the questions terribly and gets escorted off the stage. And she walks up to Nick and says, wow, this all went so fast. I didn't even get a chance to thank you, which speaks to how often people don't lend credit to those who are crucial to their successes. And we see that a lot, specifically in my world, where I do a lot of work in like the queer community. And as a queer person of color, sometimes I don't get the credit that's due me when I'm doing the, you know, the heavy lifting. And we see Nick in the same way, who she would never have cracked this case if it wasn't for his intel. If he didn't already have the connections to Mr. Big, if he didn't already sell Mr. Otterton, which we didn't talk about, but he had sold him one of his popsicles. He's really the thread that really connects this case together. And she never mentions his name and then causes a pretty tense conversation where Nick starts to realize that Judy hasn't really grown that much despite having worked with him so closely the last couple of days. And in this conversation, Nick, who had just been asked by Judy to be his partner, and we find out filled out an application to actually join the police force, confronts Judy, who apologizes for not thanking him and says, oh no, I think you said plenty. And she begins to realize that she's offended him and says that she was just stating the facts when she had in fact implied a biological connection to this savage behavior. And she goes on to explain herself by saying, Nick, it's not like that. You're not like them. To which he replies, not one of them? There's a them now? Which is one of the most poignant moments of the film because it speaks to a tribalism that is common in so much of human interaction, even though this film is about animals, and the idea not only that there's a them, but a reciprocal us, 
that there are in-groups and out-groups, and I'm not naive enough to say that's not true in society, but it is sad when you reflect on the ways we draw divisions. Nick goes on to say, you don't think I've noticed that you had fox repellent on your holster that you've been carrying with us all this time, and essentially implies, even if you acted like you trusted me or worked with me, there was always an element of fear or distrust in you. You carried that weapon around. And he goes on to mimic attacking her, and reflexively, her hand goes to her holster, and you can see, on a reflexive and potentially a biological level, she reacts, first thinking of her own safety, as though Nick would attack her. Which I think, having learned as much as we have about him at this point in the film, is an impossibility. He may be sly, and he may be deceptive, but he's not malicious, and he doesn't appear to in any way be violently inclined. So, as he's walking out of the police station, he hands her the application and walks out without another word. This scene in the movie is an awesome turning point, and it highlights latent biases that we have as human beings. And even though we work alongside of people, and even though we smile with them and go get drinks with them, sometimes it's coworkers, classmates, we start painting them as these kind of romanticized versions of people that we want to know and we want them to be. And we start to witness people try their best to assimilate with us, you know, because they know that they're different than we are. And sometimes it's me. I've done that, too, where you smile and you say the right things. You do the right things because you think it makes you safe. At some point, it always happens where someone reminds you of who you are inadvertently, usually. And I feel for Nick with that when she says basically saying you're one of the good ones. You're not like them. All the traits that I think are unbecoming of people are not redeeming qualities. You don't have those. You have these that are like mine. And Nick's like, there's not much of a difference between me and them. Like, I'm still this person. Like, and you need to see me as a person with these experiences and these feelings. And it seems as though she's kind of whitewashed who he was in a way to make him fit into whatever narrative. But even then, we can talk about microaggressions. The fact that Nick says, you've had this fox repellent on your holster the entire time. And not once have you thought about me and how that would make me feel. While watching the movie, I thought, well, maybe she did know how it would make him feel. And she was wearing it to remind him that if he ever tried something, that I have something that would keep you at bay or keep you in line and was using it as a fear tactic. But that's also assuming that Judy has very dark spots uh, in her mind. And I appreciate that she's never this one-dimensional character. And I also really love what happens next, because Judy goes home to her parents' farm, defeated and remorseful for what she's done, clearly downtrodden because... On a number of fronts, she's failed. Her first real friend in Zootopia, she completely offended on a societal, and if you'll permit me the term, a racial level. When it comes to her career, one she'd been working for her entire life, she hasn't solved the case, and the issue is still at large. But at her lowest point, when she comes home, her father remarks that they're about to be visited by Gideon Gray, her childhood bully, who's delivering pies and has become an accomplished baker. And I really love this line. Her father remarks that they considered working with Gideon Gray because of Judy's attitude and outlook towards other animals. Her willingness, at least stated, which is crucial, to give those around her a chance. And I say stated because there's a really powerful political commentary in this moment that a lot of us say one thing and do another behind closed doors. That it's easy enough to speak about equality, compassion, kindness, etc. And there's certainly noble goals. 
But I won't deny that sometimes it's hard. There are societal forces. There are people around you who will judge you for trying to change the status quo and won't want you to do so. And in many ways, Judy represents that. Deeply held prejudices that however much we might disagree with logically are emotionally or culturally sewn into who we are. And it's a lot easier said than done to simply expunge them from our psyches. But I find it so moving that her parents, an older generation, who does not live in the metropolis that Judy does, were able to be changed by their daughter's optimism, even if it was falsely placed or not truly reflected in Judy's behavior towards Nick. I really think this speaks to the conversation of privilege when we're talking about systems that repress or oppress people. I'll use the one that's uh, more of the uh, buzzword nowadays is white privilege. There's a lot of places that you can go, Kip, and have conversations with people about things that would affect me negatively or disproportionately negatively affect me that I couldn't go because I'd be seen as an angry black man or as frustrated or maybe I'm intimidating because I'm upset about it where you are allowed space to feel and move as you please. Like Nick couldn't show up or Gideon couldn't just show up to Judy's parents' farm and insist that they work with him, that they buy his pies and they sell them at their stands. It took Judy to build that bridge. And I think it's important to highlight to children and adults alike the importance of building bridges and sometimes recognizing the disconnects between two sets of people, organizations or communities. And if you have a way or the means to connect those two and to really be that liaison, I think you are morally responsible to do that. I think that we have responsibility to each other to make sure we're uplifting everyone. And I think that maybe not her actions towards Nick, did she reflect all those qualities? The Judy that her parents saw was enough for them to extend that olive branch to Gideon and bridge that community in her hometown, maybe not so much in Zootopia. And now we reach the climax of the film when Judy's father, speaking to some of her younger relatives, cautions them as they're playing through the fields not to step on the night howlers, a term that Judy and Nick had come across during their investigation, but she had always assumed referred to wolves and now learns that it refers to a very potent plant, which is, in effect, a psychotropic element. So she seeks out Nick, apologizes, and the two of them follow the trail, so to speak, and end up in a laboratory on a train car. They, of course, take this train car on a wild ride and end up destroying a lot of the evidence of these night howlers being turned into a very potent drug that has been made into a capsule shot into the necks of these predators who then start behaving erratically because of how potent this serum is. And so the evidence is destroyed, but Judy and Nick do have the weapon in question as evidence and they go to escape through the Natural History Museum, where they are met by the previous assistant mayor, Mayor Bellwether, who's a small sheep and has been commenting to Judy throughout the film that it's important that she stick up for the little guys, and that her role as a rabbit police officer is so important. Now we learn that Bellwether has concocted this plot from the beginning to take down the 10% of predators and essentially unite the other 90% of Zootopia against a common foe. And while ultimately Nick and Judy are able to foil the plot by replacing one of the capsules with a blueberry from Judy's parents' farm, they don't do so before Mayor Bellwether very movingly says, looking down at the pair as they've been trapped in a pit, that fear always works. And I remember watching this film for the first time, for me it was March of 2016, and openly crying when I heard that. 
because it is true, and it's not what I want to be true, and I don't think it's always true, but it is absolutely the case on an evolutionary and global level that fear is a force which dictates a great deal of behavior, both human and otherwise. And I would agree with you, Kip. I think that that quote from the movie was one of the most moving parts of it because it rings so true and we have history as our receipts for that. And unfortunately, self-preservation is the strongest human instinct. And when fed misinformation, when not allowed to interact and to witness how other people live and move through their lives, we see them as others. And sometimes that informs what we do. And to quote one of my favorite superheroes, Black Widow, in the Marvel movie, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, she says the truth isn't all things to all people all the time, meaning that narratives can be set that aren't necessarily factual, but will move people. And I think that Zootopia painted the perfect kind of digestible picture for young people to understand how that works. And just overall, standing in their truth and being open to people who are different than you and have different lived experiences than you can shape your own reality and how you can work together to construct a better future for each other. And Charnel, from there the film concludes on an optimistic note. Nick joins Judy on the police force, and they are now formally partners, which I really love. And Judy makes remarks on the power of change and on believing in one's ability to improve the world that they live in, which certainly may sound like an idealistic message to some, but unlike so many children's movies, this, to me, does not deny the dark realities in which we live, but incorporates them. I believe Judy, not because of who she was in the beginning of the film, rather naive in these assertions, but because of who she is at the end of the film, still believing in them, despite having revealed to herself her own prejudice, her own inability to affect substantial and immediate change, and these things make her character more credible to me. And what's more, take away every other character in the film, the fact that she and Nick ultimately forge a partnership, that she is able to see her own flaws, and that he is able to trust her, despite the fact that she may not always appear trusting of him, to me speaks to a willingness and an interest to try and be better. But all of that said, at the end of a conversation which was indeed more summative than exploratory, are there other things we didn't get to or anything you'd like the audience to consider before we conclude this episode? What I'd want the listeners to take away from this is the steps to change and the steps to self-improvement and to open conversation. We see that Judy was apologetic and remorseful when she made a mistake. She acknowledged it and they moved forward. She also understood that they were working towards a common goal in this, and that was the betterment and safety of Zootopia. And I think that once people have a common goal and a common vision, it's so much easier to work together. But one of the things we didn't really talk about in ways of affecting change and supporting and uplifting people who aren't like us was there was a dynamic in this movie all along that you kind of touched on a little bit regarding Mayor Bellwether and how she always made the comment that we have to look out for each other, look out for the little guy. It's important to have allies in high places when you are systemically kept out of certain spaces where people's biases and the way they view you and where you come from is playing an active role in how much success you can have. And I think Judy, being the first police rabbit, encountered so many barriers that no other police officer was having. But because Bellwether recognized her privilege and recognized the power that she had and that she can just kind of step over those boundaries and lift Judy up. I think that says a lot about what can be done in society to better affect change and to better support each other as well. So I would like the listeners to keep that in mind and be a little bit more cognizant of how they can do those things for other people. 
And as this was a film we were discussing, especially one aimed at children, my primary questions to the audience are as follows. If you're a parent, have you and would you show this film to your children? How would you watch it with them? How might you discuss it afterwards? If you've already seen this film, did you see a different narrative or philosophical thread in the film than we perceived? And finally, as human life and society are decidedly complex, do you feel the film portrays an accurate commentary or is too reductive in some parts and blurs some of the nuance of interpersonal relationships? And Charnel, for agreeing to help tackle and dissect a film I find to be particularly articulate, as well as yourself, thank you for making the time today. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, Kip. And before we go, if you enjoyed the way Charnel dissected Zootopia, you'd also enjoy the way he dissects life and various relationships and stories on his podcast, What About Your Friends? So as always, we'll include a link in the show notes, and we would encourage you to check him out. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and given the billion dollars Zootopia earned in revenue, we're not the only two people who saw it, so we'd really love to hear your thoughts and opinions. You can reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.